First Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 20. And we are going to, Lord willing, finish this chapter, 20 to 40. The title of the message is, All Things Decently and in Order. You're going to see that that's the kind of gives away the end, doesn't it? The last verse there uh, or so. If you weren't here last week, all I can say is probably get the CD. That's the quickest thing, uh, quickest way to get into this message. Verses 1 through 19, uh, chapter 14, Paul is continuing on something he began in chapter 12. Chapter 12, he began talking about the spiritual gifts. Chapter 13, he took, wasn't really a side trip, it was an essential. He took a trip and said, Look, all of these spiritual gifts are nothing without agape love. And then in chapter 14, now he he begins to get down to brass tacks when it comes to spiritual gifts and their place in, this is very important, public worship. He's talking about the spiritual gifts in the the church worship service. Um, Particularly, as we saw last time, two gifts. The gift of speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy. Let me make as quickly as I can a really long story short, rather than redo everything we did last Thursday. Tongues, the gift of tongues, is man speaking to God. The, the direction of this gift of tongues is always upward. It's, it's man speaking to God, but prophecy is God speaking to man through a man. Tongues need to be interpreted for, for the body to be useful. Uh, to, to be in a service where there was a, a tongue given, it would have to be interpreted for it to be useful. That's Paul's point here in chapter 14. Prophecy, though, he says, stands on its own. Prophecy builds up the body just standing on its own because it's plain English, if you will. Okay? Now, there's a lot of it is summed up in verses 1 through 5. Let's kind of read that so that we can get a, a good uh, basis for our teaching tonight. Verse 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Pursue love, Paul says, and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Three great qualities about prophecy. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. That word edification there, that is key to this whole chapter. It means to build up. This is, in a nutshell, this is Paul's whole take on the spiritual gifts. They are for building up the whole body. They are not just for your personal enjoyment. It's not about you, Paul is saying to the Corinthians. It's not about you showing off. It's about God wanting to build up the whole body. That's why the plain spoken gift of prophecy is superior to tongues in the service. That's what Paul's saying. Look at verse 18, for instance. It says, Paul says, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, you could put in the church service, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words. In a tongue. That brings us now to verse 20. This is a good place to start. This is a great principle. You could, well, you could call this a proverb. This verse 20 applies to spiritual gifts, of course. That's the context. But it also applies to everything in life. Paul says, verse 20, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, 
In malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. If you've been with us in 1 Corinthians, you know that Paul has said this quite a few times. Look, be mature. Grow up. Don't be childish, Paul says. Don't be ignorant. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want to check me out. Paul said, look, I want to feed you guys with meat, with real solid scriptural teaching. He says, but I can do nothing but feed you with milk, stuff that you can understand. He says, because you are not yet mature. Paul's complaint to the Corinthians was they thought they were really wise and they were boasting about all of their worldly wisdom. Paul's complaint was, look, you guys still need to be spoon-fed to be nourished. Right off the bat, tonight, there's an application. Are you guys feeding yourself yet? Are you feeding yourself? Or are you only still spoon-fed on Sundays and Thursdays? I have a three-year-old son. Coming up to be three here in a little bit. He's old enough now that if I try to spoon feed him, he says, no, I do it. I do it. Oh, that the church would be filled with that attitude. I do it. I do it. If every weekday morning, every child of God in our church were to feed him or herself. If everyone were to develop a healthy appetite for the word and then on Sundays and Thursdays come for a meal that's been, well, slow roasted, hopefully, and all, with all the trimmings, that kind of thing. But Paul says, are you just spoon, are you just need to be spoon fed? Paul says, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. Jesus said something similar, Matthew 10, 16, when he was sending out his uh, disciples, he said, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In malice be babes, Paul says, but in understanding be mature. The idea is, look, be childlike, but not childish. Be childlike, but not childish. Babies are harmless. I mean, most babies wouldn't, couldn't hurt anyone. Well, they might try to bite you, maybe. They're harmless, but, and that's a good quality, Paul says here. But they're not all that smart. Try giving a baby a calculus test. Most of them will fail. Paul says, look, take the best qualities of a baby, that is their trusting, dependent nature, they can do nothing on their own, and yet leave the bathwater, that is the lack of knowledge, the ignorance. Paul says, be childlike in your trust of him, but not childish and ignorant when it comes to things that God wants you to be doing or knowing. Here's another example. My my kids, they don't worry about the mortgage. They don't worry about taxes. That's childlike. That's a good thing. My kids know that their father will provide. Maybe some of you tonight need to hear that. You need to be childlike. Your father will provide. You can trust him. You don't need to worry. But Paul says, be childlike, but not childish. And in verse 21, the schoolmaster, Paul, takes these guys to school. Now, I'm going to need you guys to take your, keep your thinking caps on because we are going to, beginning in this, this verse, verse 21, we're going to be treading into scriptural waters that many commentators actually call one of the most difficult scriptures in the whole Bible. It begins in verse 21. It says, in the law, Paul says, it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet, for all that, 
they will not hear me. When he says they will not hear me, he says they will not obey, they will not comply. They will not hear me, says the Lord. Paul is quoting here Isaiah 28, 11. This is where God is pronouncing judgment on unbelieving Israel. God says to Israel, if you won't hear me now in Hebrew, in your own language, perhaps you will hear me when the Babylonians have taken you captive and they are speaking an entirely different language. Perhaps you will get the message. The New Living Translation of Isaiah 28:11 says, Since they refuse to listen, God will speak to them through foreign oppressors who will speak an unknown language. In other words, Paul's kind of saying, or, or God is saying in Isaiah 28, Every time you hear their babbling, the Babylonians, let it ring in your ears. I should have listened to God when he spoke in my own language. Verse 22. So far that's not difficult, but look, look, look as we go further here. Verse 22. Therefore tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Okay, still not too confusing. Tongues, a sign for unbelievers. Prophesying, a sign for believers. Now in verse 23 and verse 24, Paul gives two different scenarios. You guys still with me? First, chapter 16, or 14, verse 23, Paul gives a tongues scenario. He says basically this. What if an unbeliever walks in and the whole church is speaking in tongues? That's what he addresses in verse 23. Verse 24, he says, now on the other hand, what if an unbeliever walks in and the whole church is prophesying? Well, let's look at it. First, the tongues scenario. What if the whole church speaks in tongues when an unbeliever walks in? Verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues... And there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers. Will they not say that you are out of your mind? And I can say amen to that. I, I have been in a service and when, when I was just a baby Christian, uninformed, you would, you would probably say. And I walked into this service and everyone spoke in tongues all at the same time. And this is exactly what I said. They're crazy. They're out of, my, out of their mind. It, I said to myself, if this is Christianity, it's just too weird for me. The, the unbeliever, Paul says, the uninitiated, leaves that, that service thinking, cuckoo. Thinking they're a couple of clowns short of a circus. On the other hand, Paul gives a prophecy scenario. What if, on the other hand, he says, everyone prophesied? In order, in other words, if not all at once, but if everyone prophesied, verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. This is amazing to me. The word convinced is elegco. It means to bring to light, to expose. The word convicted there means to interrogate, to examine, to scrutinize, to sift, to question. Verse 25, Paul says, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. The word secrets there is the word cryptos. It means hidden, concealed, secret. Like cryptos is where we get the word crypt, when you bury something. But he says the secrets of his heart are revealed. That word revealed is phaneros, and it means to be made manifest, plainly recognized. Everybody gets it. So do you hear the scene that Paul is describing here? He's describing a scene where an unbeliever walks into a service having buried his sin deep in his heart or maybe his hurt 
deep in his heart. Or unforgiveness, deep in his heart. Or bitterness, deep in his heart. Or the affair that he's having, deep in his heart. He walks in thinking, nobody here knows me. This is my secret. And one by one, Paul says, through men that are speaking, through the prompting of God, it becomes obvious that this guy's secrets are not hidden from God. One by one, it is brought to light. It is exposed. God is, if you will, interrogating him through the words of unfamiliar people. And his sins or his hurt or whatever it is, there's a light shined upon it, like, like in the movies. You know, where were you on May 23rd? And everything is exposed, and it says, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. The word falling down means to descend from a higher place to a lower. The word worship there is proskuneo. It means to be prostrate, to be flat on your face in worship. It's talking about a profound reverence. It's talking about surrender. Paul says, look, prophecy, if it's true prophecy, can impact an unbeliever in such a tremendous way. He walks in thinking, no one knows me. Nobody knows what I've done. And he's brought to his knees by God revealing his secrets. And he walks out, Paul says, surrendered to God. And what's his report to the world? It says, and he will report that God is truly among you. Prophecy, if it actually happens in the biblical way, an unbeliever can walk in thinking he's above these people and walk out looking up toward God. And and his report is, I'll tell you what, God is in that place. God meets with those people. You see the contrast between uninterpreted tongues and prophecy. You see the contrast between tongues that nobody understands without an interpretation and prophecy, Paul says, that stands on its own. Tongues, the believer walks in and he walks out looking down on those people, saying they're crazy. Prophecy, the unbeliever is brought to his knees and he's looking up toward God and saying God is in that place. It comes down again. This was one of the messages of last week. The fact that for Paul, Paul says in the public worship, prophecy is so much more, so much better suited for public worship than tongues unless there's an interpretation. Okay. But did you notice any difficulty? Remember, I said that this was one of the more difficult scriptures in all of the New Testament. Verse 22, it says that tongues is assigned to unbelievers but wait a second verse 23 says tongues doesn't do the unbeliever any good i mean the the guy's going to walk out the unbeliever and say you guys are nuts and verse 22 says that prophecy on the other hand is not assigned to unbelievers but verses 24 through 25 say that prophecy will convince it will convert unbelievers that's odd Nearly every Bible scholar in the world agrees on the following. Huh? (laughs) Nobody knows exactly what what this is. Everybody seems to be saying, Paul, uh, what's going on here? It seems to contradict. And there's possibilities. Here's what I think. Here's the best, my best shot. Okay, you can take it or leave it. But here's my best shot. Look at verse 21 again. It says, in the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people. And yet... 
For all that, they will not hear me or obey me, says the Lord. Verse 22, therefore, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Now, remember the context. Isaiah 28. You still with me? Everybody? Yeah? Need to stand up and run around? Okay. No, don't. That would be bad. Decently in order. If you're with me here, verse 22 or verse 21 refers to Isaiah 28. And what we've already learned is that that was not a good sign. It was a sign. Paul says, or God says to them, look, if you won't listen to me in Hebrew, perhaps you'll understand when the Babylonians are speaking an entirely different language, when they have captured you. You guys know, right? A sign can be a good sign or a bad sign, a warning sign. You guys know, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. A sign can be good or bad. Isaiah 28, to me, this was God's last ditch effort at disciplining them. Them hearing other tongues was not a good thing. In Isaiah 28, this was a sign that they had blown it. I was thinking it's like ignoring the 20 signs that say bridge out on the road, careening off the bridge, and in your last breath, you look up and you read a sign at the bottom of the gorge that says, What part of bridge out did you not get? That's what this is like. This is a sign that says you've already blown it. Now, a sign that you cannot understand is not all that helpful. You know, that's why there are international signs for hospital, for restroom, men's and women's. A sign that says bridge out ahead does you no good if it's in Swahili and you don't understand Swahili. Now, this would reconcile these verses. Basically, Paul would be saying, look, tongues without an interpretation, it's a sign, but it's a sign that they can't understand. It's like a danger sign in Swahili. Verse 23, he says, look, that sign won't do that unbeliever any good. He will walk out of that that church service and he'll keep barreling toward the bridge that's out. He'll keep barreling toward destruction. And yet prophecy, Paul says, though its main purpose... Is for building up of the believers still can benefit the unbeliever because it's God speaking in plain English. See, this is how awesome prophecy can be. If you you notice back, look at verse 3, I think it is. Paul says, look, prophecy builds up the believer. It builds him up, it stirs him up, it comforts him, it lifts him up. And even the unbeliever can, prof- can, can profit from prophecy in verse 23. Because it says, or verse 24, it says, He is convinced by all. He's convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Oh, that we would make ourselves available for God to speak through. Now, verse 26 and following Paul's going to get down to brass tacks. If we're, if we're going to have a believer's meeting, an afterglow, whatever you would want to call it, the handbook, if you will, really begins in earnest here in verse 26. This is a handbook, if you will, for the use of gifts in public worship, and it starts with a summary, I believe, and a rule of thumb. Verse 26, the summary. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation has an interpretation. And then the rule of thumb is, let all things be done for edification, for the building up. Verse 26 again, how is it then, brethren, 
Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Now, is Paul just summarizing what's happening in Corinth? Or is there also a gentle rebuke in here? I don't know. I don't know, but I kind of lean toward the latter, that maybe Paul is saying, how is it that every single person in the church has something big and dramatic to say? At your services. Because if you remember, Corinth was a place where it was show-off time. Could it be that Paul was saying to them, how can anybody be listening if it's a room full of talkers? Now, again, I think that might be, it might be an overstatement because this I know. God does want everyone to contribute. That's, that's what's appealing to me about chapters 12, 13, and 14 is that God wants everyone, we are to be equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. He wants everybody to be part of what he's doing, right? But the question would be, does everyone have to do something, contribute in a big look-at-me sort of way? Paul might be saying, is it impossible that God might use some of you in a more personal way? Like this? Like how can I pray for you? Ten minutes before the message. Or 30 minutes after the service. Just going to one person and saying, how can I pray for you? Or saying, I think the Lord wants me to tell you this, wants me to encourage you in this. See, the rule of thumb is so helpful. It says, let all things be done for what? Edification. For building up. Y'all, this is my heart cry, if you will, for our church. I don't have a, a, a background in supernatural gifts. That's not, it's not something that I want to pursue for fun or for uh, interest's sake. What draws me to these chapters, the reason we've spent weeks now in these gifts of the Spirit, is what it teaches about everyone in the church coming in to minister what it teaches about the fact that god wants to build up this church not through just me but through every single one of us and some of you he wants to build through publicly he wants to build our church publicly through you maybe through teaching or prophecy or even healings but many of you he wants to work through the body in what you say the 15 minutes before the message, the 30 minutes after the service, by offering to pray for somebody, by sharing a word of wisdom. The question you just need to ask yourself is, will this build this person up? If it will, I say, go for it. See, what I desire is that everyone would come in and not to say, what, what can I get out of the church? But, Lord, what do, you, you ha- what do you have for me? What do you want me to do to be ministering to your body of believers. All right, brass tacks. Here we go again. Verse 27. These are the parameters governing tongues. Verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Once again, we see that this gift of tongues is heaven word right it's god word it's not speaking from men to men it's he says if there is no interpretation then just 
quietly to yourself, speak to yourself and to God. It couldn't be any plainer. If we have a believers meeting, by the way, dun, 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 two weeks from tonight, I'm hoping we'll have our first little mini believers meeting. Now I'm like, all you guys are running to the door. No. When we have this believers meeting, if someone were to speak in tongues, if no one stands up to interpret, or if the interpretation is not biblical, we won't allow any more tongues on that night. And even if there is an interpreter present, Paul is very specific. He says, two at the very outside, three. Otherwise, verse 28, keep silent, speaking to himself and to God. Next, brass text concerning prophecy. Look at verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Now, that's interesting. That means that no prophecy is above scrutiny. You see that? Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. For instance, if a guy stands up and prophesies, I am the Messiah, bow down to me. That's pretty easy to judge. The, the ushers will minister to him very quickly. But let's say someone stands up and proclaims terrible destruction upon our church. Are we supposed to, do we just receive it? No, this says, let the others judge. The the point being that the Holy Spirit has all of our numbers, right? I mean, he can get a hold of me or you at any time. If someone stands up and says, I believe there will be uh, an earthquake that destroys this place in a week, then, well, we can just wait a week and see if we need to stone the guy or not. But the point is that we don't have to receive everything, right? Particularly, God, I think, will equip the leaders to go, you know what, we're not... We're not going to receive that, right? And then if a week later there's an earthquake, well then, you know, let them stone us, I guess. Verse, verse 3 says that prophecy lifts up, builds up, stirs up. That's, a lot of times if a prophecy is that doom and destruction kind of thing, it doesn't fit into that, chap, into that verse. So the leadership can stand up and say, you know what, we're just not going to receive that tonight, okay? Verse 30. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Basically, in a nutshell, Paul's just saying, look, guys, take turns. Don't walk all over each other. Don't interrupt each other. The Holy Spirit's not going to interrupt himself. He's not schizophrenic. He's a gentleman. And in case you're tempted to say, Paul, Paul's sees this coming, the people that would go, oh, I can't, I, I didn't want to interrupt a guy, but I had to because the Spirit made me do it. Verse 32, Paul says, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That word subject means, it's, in the Greek, it's hupotasso. It means under arranged. It's to be arranged under. Paul says, look, your will, th- this gift is placed under your will. In other words, the gifts that that God gives are always going to be under your control. You can stop them. You can shut your mouth, Paul would say. God is not going to take away your ability of self-control. You won't be, as we've said before, you won't be at Walmart and all of a sudden just start speaking in tongues. Right? He will, you will be able to control yourself. Listen to this. Spiritual empowering is such a contrast to demon possession. And so many people get that confused. What an insult to equate them, to say that the Holy Spirit must operate the way a demon does. 
Right? A demon barges in. He takes control against an unbeliever's will. But the spirit waits to be invited. He waits to be asked. And then he continues to allow you to be in control. Don't ever buy into the, the spirit made me do it. Because verse 32 says the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Paul is continuing on. He's basically saying, look, you have self-control. God is not the one who is creating this chaos that's in Corinth. See, think about it again. The unbeliever who walks into the, the church at Corinth would walk out going, well, I guess God is into chaos. And we've been in churches like that where you, you leave thinking, I guess God is a little weird. I mean, he must be into chaos. Paul says, no, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. God creates peace. He creates peace and order out of chaos. Isn't that what he does? This is an aside. This isn't in the context. But I think maybe the Lord wants me to say it tonight. Is your life chaos? Don't all raise your hands at once. Is your life chaos? I need to tell you, I need to tell me. God didn't do that. If your life is chaos, it's not God's fault. But the beautiful thing is that God can fix that. That's what he does. He makes order out of chaos. He brings peace. He's not the author of confusion, but of peace. There's an application for you there, right? For me. Lord, bring order into my life. But I think you're going to find it's, it's closely connected with verse 32 that basically says, look, you have self-control. You have to ask the Lord to make, bring this chaos into order, but you need to help him with your self-control, right? Verse 34. Oh, here we go. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in the church. All right, that's pretty clear. Moving on. <laughs> is Paul calling for utter silence from all women in the church? From the time... <laughs> keep it down there. Husbands up here is like, Yes. From the time that they walk through the, the door till the time that they leave, is Paul saying there should be utter silence from all women in the church? Is this a, a zero-tolerance policy mandated to women speaking in church? Let me say, if it were, then every husband who's ever been nagged would spend a lot more time at church. Right? It'd start, honey, would you fix that? You know what? Let's go to church. Is that what's going on here? No. First of all, notice that Paul has already commanded silence. This isn't the first time he commanded silence in this chapter. He's already commanded silence twice before. Notice it in, in specific situations. Verse 28, Paul says, look, if you're speaking in a tongue and there's no interpreter, keep silent. Verse 30, if you're prophesying and your turn is over, he says, keep silent. Now, is this call for silence from women, is this a universal at all times or is it, like the other two cases, is Paul referring to a specific situation? Well, here's why I think 
It must be a specific situation. Chapter 11, just three chapters earlier, Paul has already talked with the women, saying he was rebuking them in that culture for having, not having a covering on their head when they prophesy. So if he didn't want them to prophesy at all, then he, you would have thought he would have mentioned it at chapter 11 and said, look, this whole head covering thing is beside the point. You shouldn't be prophesying at all. But he didn't say that. So to me, that means that prophecy must be allowed from women. Plus, you have the, the, the fact that Philip, his, he had four prophetesses as daughters. Plus, you have the fact that um, no one rebuked his daughters. Plus, also, in Acts chapter 2, when, when uh, Peter's explaining this gift of, the, of tongues that's, that's going on, one of the things he says is, uh, this is prophesied in the Old Testament, He says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So all of those things lead me to believe that Paul, as he has done twice before in this chapter, is not calling for total silence from all women at all times, but he's addressing something specific. We have a clue in verse 35. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Now, some give the following explanation. It seems plausible to me that men and women were on opposite sides of the church in those days. We know that uh, some Hebrew churches, some Jewish uh, synagogues were like that. So that the idea would be today, uh, Scott and Sandra here are uh, right beside each other, right? Right today, if I said something that, that Sandra wasn't too, she's like, I'm not sure if I buy that. She could like elbow him, say, what do you think of that? He'd be like, we'll talk about it later, Right? Um, or if I say something about husbands loving your wives, she could be like, did you hear that? Right? But imagine if the scenario is true that the women are over here and the guys are over here, that Marge stands up and yells to Harold, I don't know about that, honey. What do you think? Or she stands up and says, husbands love your wife. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, Harold? Now, I, I don't know if that's the proper interpretation, if that's the explanation, but it wouldn't surprise me considering what chaos was in Corinth. Whatever it was, I don't see it as being a prohibition to speak or to prophesy, considering these other texts. I do have one more idea, one more possibility that to me seems reasonable. Look at verse 35. It says, And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. The word uh, where it says let them ask, it's a very strong word for let them ask. Listen to this. It means to accost one with an inquiry. It means to put a question to, to interrogate. We've seen that before already. It could be that Paul's talking about the judging. Remember in verse 29, look back there, it says, and let the others judge. It could be that there were women standing up in the church saying, are you sure about that? What do you mean? Give me more evidence. They could have been doing that kind of thing. Um, again, it says to accost one with an inquiry, to put a question to, to interrogate. could be that Paul was saying that the men in the leadership of the church need to be doing that, not the wives. So Paul could be saying to the women, look, don't interrogate the prophets. Don't accost them. Don't assault them with these questions. Do what is fitting. Assault your own husbands with these questions. It says pepper them with these questions. Make them get answers for that thing that didn't seem to fit just quite right in the church. Do you hear that? Now, that's interesting because that's another aside. This assumes 
that men will be the leaders in their home. This is a, a, a rebuke to the Corinthian church and to our church, I think. All the, all the men who say, I can't believe that a woman would, would prophesy or, or whatever it might be. I think this is saying, look, we wouldn't have to worry about that if husbands would do their job. If the men would, as we're going to see in chapter 16, stand up and be men. Husbands, lead your families. Paul, again, will tell us in chapter 16, I think it's verse 13, quit ye like men is what it is in the, in the King James. It's be a man. Be a leader. Now, lastly, Paul anticipates some strong resistance from these Corinthians. They had already shown a great ability to despise Paul's authority as an apostle. So verse 36, he says, Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? They had already, from beginnings of this chapter, we discovered that these guys talked bad about Paul. Like, oh, he's a little guy. He's not very, uh, not very special with his speech. Apollos is a much better speaker. You know, Paul's letters are pretty good, but, I mean, he's, he's ugly, he's short, he's bald. He's got that one brow across the front of his head. Saying all these things about Paul... And Paul says, finally, as he's getting closer to the end here, he says, or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it only you that it reached? In other words, you won't listen to me, an apostle. Now tell me again, Paul says, what are your credentials, you Corinthians? How many inspired epistles have you written? Did the the, the word of God originally come through you? Or has God given you, Corinthians, a special knowledge that hasn't reached the rest of us yet? Because that's what they were saying. They're like, oh, you know what, Paul, that might be how the other churches do it, but we don't need to do it that way. Is the Corinthian church, Paul would say, different from all of the rest of God's churches? Verse 37, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, see, because they were saying, look, I'm a prophet. This is what I say. This, This is what I think God is saying to the church. I don't care what Paul says. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. What that tells us, again, in in context of the the prophecies and tongues and the gifts of the Spirit, all tongues, all prophecies should always agree with Scripture. If a guy prophesies something wacky and you say, well, wait a second, that doesn't jibe with 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If he says to you, hey, but God is doing a new thing. I mean, Paul's things are old news. God is doing a new thing. Paul says... No, don't buy into that. Verse 38. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Now, it sounds like at first that Paul is basically throwing up his hands saying, look, if someone's not going to listen to me, they're not going to listen to me. So just, you know, let them be ignorant. But it's interesting, the tenses of the verbs. If anyone is ignorant, the word ignorant actually, is ignorant, let him be ignorant. There are two different tenses. One is the present active indicative, which means... If you see someone, is, it's, they're, they're, it's indicated that they're ignorant. If you see them in the state of ignorance regarding this, saying if they say, you know what, I'm not listening to Paul, I'm going to ignore him, then the, the other one is the present active imperative, let him be ignorant. I think this might be a, a good way to translate this. If anyone ignores my words, Paul says, you ignore his words. If anyone ignores the fact that I'm giving you Scripture... 
And they say, you know what? We don't need to listen to that. Paul lived 2,000 years ago. Paul says, you ignore them. They ignore these words. You ignore their words. And then finally, verse 39. This is a summary again. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. You see, again, he says prophecy. Look, this is something you really need to desire earnestly. This can be such a great blessing to the church. He says, but do not forbid to speak in tongues. And he's talking about when they are interpreted, right? But you can obviously see he puts a greater emphasis on prophecy in the worship service. Verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. Verse 40 says, all things be done decently and in order. Here's the deal. Much of the church falls into two camps. Some only hear those first words. Let all things be done. I mean, let it loose. Tongues, prophecy, miracles, signs, wonders. There's no parameters. Just go for it. This is the church that, um, that you know, or people that would say, if they came into our church, they would say, look, that church is dead. They won't let you interrupt the service with tongues. They have no time set aside where people get to speak in tongues whenever they want. Those are the people that say, let all things be done. That's all only words they hear out of that, that verse. But then there are others that only hear the words decently and in order. They forget that the first part of that sentence is also scriptural. Let all things be done. He says, desire earnestly to prophesy. Do not forbid to speak with tongues if they're interpreted. Do you get it? Paul wants us to let all things be done. Everything that that God has for us, he wants it to be done if it can be done decently and in order. And we've talked about this over and over again. That means... You're not going to bark like a dog. You're not going to do all the crazy stuff that, that you're afraid of because they need to be done decently and in order. This is interesting. Um, the word decently means a, a fixed succession, observing a fixed time. In other words, taking turns. Paul's already said that, right? Look, take turns. Don't be going crazy. But he also says... Um, Excuse me, that was in order. The word decently means, this is great, it means in a seemly manner. The first word under the definition is in an elegant figure, shapely, graceful, comely, bearing one's self becomingly in speech or behavior. Do you hear that? God wants to, for us to experience these gifts, but it would only be gracefully. Something that someone could walk out of the church and go, man, that was right. That was beautiful. God really was there. It wasn't some manufactured thing. It wasn't some crazy thing. It was just as God would do it, which is peacefully, gracefully, decently, and in order.